You're listening to another life-transforming message from Awakened Church with campuses in San Diego and Salt Lake City. To find out more about us, go to awakenedchurch.com. Charlie, so um, yesterday, you, it was a crazy day. You, do, you have been doing three or four events a day. We, we've been uh, crisscrossing the country. We started yesterday in Chandler, Arizona, went to Chino Hills with Jack Hibbs, and we went to Hemet, which was something, and then we went up to... Uh, San Jose, and then we went down to here. And look, we're working really hard. We're doing two podcasts a day, two hours of radio a day, speaking on average three to four times a day. You know, Samuel, my dear friend here, he's like, hey, do you want to add an 8 a.m.? I said, I want to just go all out because right now, this is the time to do it, right? I, I just feel called that God has given us this platform. God has given us this time in this moment. And, you know... I, we want to go as hard as we possibly can. And so it's been an amazing blessing. You know, we wake up every morning just so thankful that you, we get to pour into something where we see ourselves moving the dial even slightly towards something that is good. And that is a fulfilling life. And so uh, we, we, we are just so blessed to be here today to be able to unpack some of these ideas, kind of give an update of what's going on, talking about why church is essential. By the way, it's amazing to see all of you gathering in person here today. And just blessed to be here. Thank you. Oh, well, it's such an honor. Really quickly, though, I did forget to do this, and I want to do this. Melanie Burkholder, uh, June Carter, can you guys quickly stand up? Quickly stand up. These are, these are, you'll see their names. They are, they are both running. This beautiful young lady here, do not be deceived, former Secret Service. So I... I made the mistake of trying it out. I woke up like five minutes later unconscious. My wallet was gone. She's incredible. What she can do with a taser is unbelievable. And, uh, but June Carter, Melanie, we are so blessed that you're here. We are so blessed that you're running. You'll see their names on your ballots. Make sure that you get behind them. Godly, God-fearing. Family, beautiful people. So God bless you. So I just wanted to highlight you guys. Thanks for being here. So Charlie, you know, people say, well, you know, the church should disengage from politics. And yet when I came from Australia to America, I found that the entire political system in America was birthed out of faith. Amen. And, I, and let's go even further back. Uh, some... Some people say that the church should be completely separate from politics. Well, when Tyndale started to translate the Bible into English, which was the language of the peasants, he went back to the Koine Greek, and he, he found out something really interesting that was not necessarily being interpreted towards its original meaning. So the word church was kind of a placeholder term for the term that Jesus himself used called ecclesia. Now, what is an ecclesia? Now, some people say it means gathering. That's not incorrect, but it's not the full picture. See, Jesus, when he said, on this rock, we all say, build my church. He said, on this rock, build my ecclesia. And so I felt so moved by my pastor, Rob McCoy, to go into a real deep dive of where does this word come from? Why did Jesus use a secular term? He didn't use synagogue. He didn't use temple. He said ecclesia. It's because ecclesia was a real thing that existed during that time. It was a Greek gathering that was the closest thing you could possibly have towards a political meaning. Wow. 
It was a democracy. It was all voting age individuals that would come together unified around two principles, a Greek word called, called eleutheria and isonomia, freedom and equality. So Jesus said, on this rock, build my ecclesia. He said, on this rock, build my gathering of active, engaged, involved, aware people that are not walled off, that are not compartmentalized. Instead, that are, have a comprehensive Christianity. It's so interesting because when Jesus said that, he went up to the mouth of the Jordan River and all the pagan religions were screaming their heads off as he said this. And he said, all of those will perish, but on this rock build my ecclesia. And he used that term, I think, intentionally because Jesus never wanted the church, in my opinion, in any sort of theological deep dive when you go into the Greek words that were used, to be walled off. He never wanted the church to be something like, we have the truth, you don't, we're not gonna go contest in this sphere of influence. And so now here we are in a country that was founded on the two words of eleutheria and isonomia, freedom and equality. We're in that country. We're in the country that Jesus said, on the rock build my ecclesia. And what a gift we have, because most of the rest of the world does not live in that kind of a country. And I believe that we've been given this incredible gift, truly from God, yes. inspired by activist preachers that founded this country, albeit we've made a mistake, but America is not a mistake, everybody. This is a gift from God that we live in this country. So, so uh, the, the ecclesia, the marketplace, the, the, the place of ideas, obviously there was contention. What, what, what happens if the church steps back from the ecclesia, if we just step into hiding behind the walls of the church, disengaging? Well, it, it's what happens is California, where all of a sudden... <laughs> where the church saw an incredible surge of growth. Jesus movement, Calvary Chapel. There's more Calvary Chapel south of Van Nuys than Dunkin' Donuts. You flip over a stone, you got a Calvary Chapel in Southern California, right? 10,000% growth, not that's not transfer growth, that's conversion growth, right? But Calvary Chapel always believed we don't do politics. We don't get into that stuff. And that, you know, th they were trying to bring people out of Eastern religions and drug use, 60s and 70s. I kind of get that to an extent. But as the church grew, did California become a better place to raise a family for middle-class incomes? California's aborted more babies than the entire population of Canada. California is the author of no-fault divorce, transgender bathrooms, the most graphic and awful anti-Christian, anti-biblical sexual education curriculum you could possibly imagine, most homeless, hardest to start a business, most unequal. We, you guys all know it, gas tax, highest income tax you could possibly imagine. So as the church was being built, the left was doing ecclesia. While the church was gathering and going towards conversions, not disciples, the culture around us was tearing around. And I attribute this to two things. Number one, understandable eschatology. Some people think that Jesus is coming next Thursday. What's the, what's the big deal? Church is on fire. Let's get the kids out. I'm like, why don't you put the fire out? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, the house is on fire. Let's get the kids out. Put the fire out. Number two is that people are afraid to contest on issues that might make them lose friends, yeah. might make them lose social status, yeah. or that they might not be that well-versed on. Yeah. And so what happens is you have a state right now where in the midst of a pandemic, tens of thousands of businesses that are going under, schools that are closed, you lost, you've lost more people to suicide under the age of 30 in this state to the virus. What is Gavin Newsom's priority? His priority is to pander to the pedophile lobby 
to pass SB 145, signed into law, that now if you're a pedophile in the state of California, if a judge gives you the authority to do so, and there's plenty of activist judges in this state, you do not have to register in the sex registry. That is in law. So while the world is burning, BLM is marching through the streets, pastors are going to prison, Gavin Newsom says, I know, I want to go give a gift to the long-desired pedophile lobby in this state. That's what, that is what happens when the church doesn't engage. The church saw a renaissance the last 30 years in this state, but the state declined. And so ha only half of church-going Californians that are evangelicals are registered to vote. Only half of those vote in presidential years. Most people that go to the church and raise their hand and say, Jesus Christ is Lord, they don't contest at all in the political system. And I believe that we are gonna be called to account in every sphere of influence, from civic, governmental, and everything that we do. Well, let's, let's drill down on that. You know, Proverbs says that when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. God gave dominion over the earth to man. So God is not gonna choose who he wants. He's basically given us. He says, hey, you, if you want this guy to be the leader, then that's the leader. But understand, whoever you elect, you're gonna live under their policies. So there's a, there's a lot of contention that well, you know, um, you know, Donald Trump is, he has, you know, crazy tweets. He's a racist. He puts people in cages. And you, you've traveled with him. You, you know him. T tell us from the inside what the media is saying. How accurate is, is what we're hearing on CNN, MSNBC? Yeah, let's, let's unpack each of those. So let's just start with the kids in cages. It's an absolute bitter lie. It's just, I, it is a pathological lie. The entire idea that children are on the southern border intentionally being put in cages. First of all, that policy, if at all it existed, which has been sunsetted, was from the prior administration. Any of the photographs, any of the videos happened under the Obama administration. And so if you were silent during the Obama administration, you're tweeting about kids in cages all of a sudden because you don't like the current president, uh, the president, then you're kind of a hypocrite, to be perfectly honest with you. And the second thing is this, which is, and, and so I, I find that entire line of reasoning, I hear it all the time, and I just, it's, it is so incredibly pathologically untrue that, that Donald Trump is like ordering young children to be put into cages. In fact, there's a new story, you guys can look it out, that they're being put in hotel rooms now. I mean, that's, that's that to try and at least have some sort of transition process. That's number one. Number two, the racist thing. Let's just get into this. Someone does not magically become a racist just because they decide to run for the presidency. And so let's look at the life of Donald Trump. He gets, he's in 128 rap songs. I'm in zero rap songs, okay? <laughs> He was honored by Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, black community. He owned a sports team. He drafted Herschel Walker, who he let babysit his kids. Herschel Walker, who won the Heisman Trophy, one of the greatest college athletes of all time, says that Donald Trump is one of the most decent, amazing human beings ever. So someone doesn't magically all of a sudden get the wickedness in their heart because they go down the escalator. What it is is a cheap, baseless attack to try to silence discussion. That's what it really is. And quite honestly, let's just look at the policy portfolio. If this guy harbored those sort of resentments in his heart, why did he give record funding to historical black colleges and universities? Why did he go out of his way to sign prison reform, the First Step Act, which all of us as Christians should say, you know what, people do deserve a second chance at life. People do deserve redemption. And it's President Donald Trump who, not, not Barack Obama, not Kamala Harris, who championed that through the US Congress 
and got it signed into law, which has now allowed over 1,000 mostly black inmates successful re-entry back into society when they had very, very harsh prison sentences. And these are people, by the way, that had become pastors of prison ministries. I mean, they had an incredible track record, but they, had an they, they were not allowed out because of prior you know, crime bills that were written. And President Trump said, this doesn't make any sense. How about Opportunity Zones, which has brought billions and billions of dollars to the black community across the country? And then you just look through the, and then the other picture is this, which is that I, I really find it to be disappointing, in fact, maddening, and really dangerous when we use a term that has so much weight as racist, and we just throw it around like a Frisbee. Because here's the problem, is that there are people in this country that are racist, but I always say that we have a supply and demand problem with racists in our country. There's an incredible demand by the mainstream media to try to find racists. The problem is there's just not that many of them. Like, we have a lack of supply. And like when you could, I mean, Jesse Smollett had to hire two black guys to exactly, pretend they were white I mean, guys. When, when in the antebellum South, you didn't fake hate crimes. Yeah. Like they were, they, they happened all the time. When, when there is a fake hate crime industry out there of which there's hoaxes, maybe we're actually a lot more decent than we give ourselves credit for. And I'm not saying there's not people that harbor that resentment. I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm saying they're nowhere near as widespread nor institutionalized. And so here's what happens when you have this incredible amount of demand and a low level of supply. Anyone that says anything racist becomes an instantaneous celebrity overnight. Just look at Richard Spencer or David Duke. We know these people because there's such an incredible demand and low supply, they become overnight celebrities. If they were everywhere, we would have to have that kind of, like, that kind of tension. The second part about it is this, which is, I, I'm a big believer that speech and dialogue is really what prevents us from tearing each other apart. Christ was the ultimate, the ultimate communicator. He, he engaged in difficult dialectics intentionally. And Aristotle said that we are the speaking beings. Like, we as human beings, we need to be able to talk to get things off our chest, to get our deep thoughts articulated, and we can then wrestle with these ideas. And from a utilitarian standpoint, as soon as you stop talking, that bridge from silence to all of a sudden tearing each other apart happens like that. There's only two ways to govern human beings. Two ways. You can organize every single government system in the history of the world in one of these two ways. One is by speaking, talking, and persuasion. That is the American system. You have to make really good arguments. You have to win people's trust. You have to use logic and reason. And hopefully you're able to do a good job. And if not, you're kicked out of office. The other way is by force. That's it. That's the only two ways to govern people. And so my fear is that when we just throw around that term, you're a racist, you're a racist, you're a racist. Like, wait a second. What you're doing is you're trying to stop people from talking. Because understandably, no one wants to be called that. that. No one wants to be called that. And as soon as you are, you run to the hills, you're like, I'm done. I don't want to be called that awful name. And that, it is, the, it is a almost political paralysis that people get. They stop. As soon as you get called that, all discussions end. You're like, I'm disengaging. I don't want to interface anymore. And I think that we have to get past that moment in American politics. And this is something I've learned, which is that I'm a conservative. And I think that the left is wrong. They think we're bad. Like they, they think we're actually really bad people. And as soon as you think the other side is bad, that gives you justification to all of a sudden have a moral license to do things you otherwise would not do if you just thought they were incorrect on policy. Wow, that's incredible. Well, let's... 
you know, a lot of a lot of the the videos that that I've seen, and what one of the things that that really um, highlighted you as a as a Joshua to our generation is your courage. And I love how you've gone into the schools. Now, one of the saddest things is I know that Harvard, Veritas Truth, used to be the bastion of a, being a theological seminary to train people up with a biblical worldview. And I think, again, while we were building the church walls, they were doing ecclesia going into our colleges. Talk a little bit about why, why you're so passionate about, because it's literally every time I see it, you're in the lion's den. They're screaming and they're... I, and I love the comparison to Daniel, by the way, uh, of just not myself, just in general. Yeah. And I'll get into that in a second. I think we have some Turning Point leaders here, by the way. Tur the Turning Point USA leaders are American God heroes. God bless you awesome. guys. God bless you. And so, um, look, I, I guess we can, I should probably go backwards a little bit. Uh, eight and a half years ago, I started Turning Point USA uh, without going to college. I took a gap year. It's 19. Been, yeah, I started, well, yeah. 18 and a half. Yeah, 18 and a half. And, uh, it's been eight and a half gap years, and it's kind of awesome. Um, and look, I, I, I'm a very outspoken critic, and I think a little bit, I push the boundaries on this topic intentionally, because I think that we as human beings want, we need our presuppositions challenged. I think as soon as you don't challenge any sort of preconceptions you have, then all of a sudden you get into dogma, and that's a bad thing. And that's why we as Christians should be unafraid to contest about the gospel or about the authenticity of the Bible. Because the more that I believe we dig into the archaeological and the, yes. and the, the historical backing of the Bible, the more your faith will be strengthened. I really believe that. And so I encourage you guys to not get away from those conversations. The same goes for college. And so because it's completely built on lies. I mean, I'm just going to be very honest with you guys. And... The, the entire way we do higher education in this country, when you look at it, I'm about to tell you some numbers and I'm gonna make an argument. We have been doing this so incorrectly for so long, it's time for us to completely rethink how we educate our children post high school. Only 59% of kids that go to college graduate. 59%, 41% of kids that go drop out. How many of you know some of that dropped out of college? Almost everyone does. And those kids have their self-confidence ruined. They're in debt. They're without direction. They never should have gone in the first place. We have way too many kids going to college. Way too many kids. Now, out of the kids that graduate, out of the kids that graduate, after 10 years, the New York Federal Reserve said, how are they doing? Like, let's try to measure our success. 44% of the kids that graduate, they got the piece of paper. 44% are employed in minimum wage jobs that don't require a college degree. So why'd they go in the first place? Put simply, they're borrowing money they don't have to study things that don't matter to find jobs that don't exist. And so we, we, we interview thousands and thousands of young people at Turning Point USA. My favorite question to ask a recent college graduate is, what's your skill? And they said, well, I went to Stanford. I said, what's your skill? And they said, no, I studied political science. What's your skill? What can you do that a high schooler cannot do? And they said, well, I know all this stuff. I said, that's not a skill. And you probably, the stuff you learned is probably mountains of trash anyway. So like, what's your skill? And they've never been asked that question because college is not about skill development, right? It's about an ideological pursuit of nothingness. And let me just be very clear, college is... College is not what you guys think it is, it's not. College should be, and by the way, I'm a huge believer in the idea of the academy. The academy should be this. You get a sixth, seventh, or eighth grader and you start them on this journey and you tempt them a little bit. You look at them in the eyes and you say, there is truth and there's goodness in the world. Try and find it. 
That's what the academy should be. You tempt them. You challenge a young person. They're like, okay. That's where they start reading Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, Augustine, Aquinas. They dig and they dig. And as soon as they start drinking from the streams of liberty, guess what? They're going to want to go find its source, Jesus Christ. And then that's why Western classical education, it all comes downstream from there, right? All these guys were drinking from the streams of liberty because remember, liberty is not man's idea. It's God's idea. Now, here's the problem, though, is that we don't do that in higher education. We have done something that is so immoral and so awful. We say there is no truth, there is no goodness, let's go complain nihilistically for the next four years. And they don't learn about Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, the classics, Augustine, Aquinas, Burke, Hume, the incredible amount of literature that built our, our country and our civilization, Shakespeare, any of that. Instead, it's, it's grievance-based literature about everything that is wrong about the world around you. And it creates really unhappy, foolish people. And so you're paying an exorbitant amount of money for kids not to pursue truth. And even worse than that, if anyone dare disagree or contribute one piece of information that might be contrary, the dogma says, you're a heretic, I need my trigger warning, safe space, throw them off campus, we're gonna burn this place down. And so college should be about the pursuit of goodness, the pursuit of truth, temp like almost tempting and challenging that young freshman to go on that journey. So by the time they graduate, that certificate means that I'm a little bit closer to be able to articulate what is good in the world and if there is some form of truth, right? That is what classical education is supposed to be. Instead, we now create young people to become experts at complaining. And like we, we have created a professional complaining class where instead of becoming stronger to be able to endure the inevitable and suffering of the world, right? Like, how are you able to create a, 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 a more, let's say, um, a better capacity of a metaphorical muscle system to endure the suffering that will come on your shoulders that all of you know that is inevitable, right? The pain, the unexpected, the divorce, it all happens, right? College should be, like, I have an 18-year-old, by the time they're 22, I want them to be a stronger, better prepared person. We don't do that. Instead, we say, we're going to train you to be able to complain to try to remove the suffering from the world. To try to say, we're going to turn you into an activist so that you can then go scream louder and mobilize into the streets so that you can eventually get the suffering around us. We as Christians should find huge problems with this. Because we know we live in a broken world that we're depraved by nature and the only salvation is Jesus Christ. We know that. And so if the entire ideological kind of direction of the academy is like we're going to create a small set of people to go then mobilize in the streets, we should say, time out, what are we doing here? And then, so, and then even beyond that, let's go a level deeper. If you send your kid to college, you're going to play Russian roulette with their values. They, they might go to college and they're going to come back somebody that you do not recognize. I tell this story quite often. You know, it's the, it's the let's just use this neighborhood for example, because I'm sure a lot of you can resonate with this, right? It's the Del Mar mom, she got all the tutors, and I don't mean any offense to anyone here, by the way, it's just, it's just the stereotype that exists, okay? And it's 100% true. So, so, Right, it's, 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 the, it's the Del Mar mom, got all the tutors, tutors to the kid, gets into Stanford, gets the Stanford mom bumper sticker, right? She's wearing Stanford everything, the grocery store, to bed, like working out at the gym. She can't, she tells everyone that her kid got into Stanford, right? It's like breaking news in the community. And that's fine, you know, it's, I couldn't get into Stanford. It's a big deal. They go up to Palo Alto, right? They move their kid in. All of a sudden they start to see things that are a little weird, right? They all of a sudden see that there's like 
I don't know, boys, girls, and girls' dorms next to each other, no such thing as genders. They get a little confused. Their kid goes in to study history, right? And they say, okay, have a nice time, see you at Thanksgiving. Kid comes back for Thanksgiving, says, hey, honey, how was uh, your first couple semesters? Well, actually, I'm non-binary now, and I have no gender, and I changed my uh, degree from history to North African lesbian poetry, and... <laughs> By the way, that turkey on Thanksgiving, did it consent to being killed? Because I'm vegan now, and that's a point of exploitation, and this is Indigenous People's Day. And you're like, what? And the Stanford mom is like, what just happened? Like, we live in Del Mar, like, you're a boy. Like, no, I'm not. And you're like, what? Like, in 90 days or less, and... I mean that, and again, it's an intentionally provocative narrative. I don't mean to, I really do not mean offense, but I say that because it resonates on a very deep level, that when you said, send your kid off to college, all of a sudden they might become somebody completely different. And so I think we have to completely rethink the way that we do higher education. And I'll tell you this, that we need way more people to go to become plumbers, electricians, HVAC, carpenters, <laughs> entrepreneurs, you know, take risks in the marketplace, police officers, firefighters, going to the military, all these sorts of things. Huge believer in gap years. And so, and I'll be honest with you, there's way more wisdom in the American plumbing community than from Stanford or Yale. <laughs> yeah, yesterday, uh, yesterday I thought I'll just, I'll take a little, little bit of a break and I, I hit, my, uh, hit my 80s classic music and... Uh, Michael Jackson, I'm starting with the man in the mirror, came on. I'm asking if he'll change his ways. And the problem with critical race theory is that, and this is what's permeating our colleges today, is that critical race theory basically gets me to look out and America is bad, society is bad, and therefore I need to become an activist against these things that are kind of almost ethereal out there as opposed to up and for the longest time, education was about me working on my character, realizing that the way to change the world out there has to begin with me. And so we have, we have people screaming for equality. Yesterday I was watching a video of a beautiful black man in, in San Francisco uh, marching for conservative values. Black man got beat up by white Antifa BLM activists where they knock one of his teeth out and his, his mouth is all bloodied. And I'm like, you do realize you guys are meant to be Black Lives Matter and you just, white people just beat up a black guy because that's the problem. Because when I think that the problem is out there, I can get hate out there and it doesn't begin with me. And that's the, that's the great tragedy. So, so as we're coming into all of this and just we've got a few minutes left in this, tell us what are some of the biggest issues that you see that are at stake in this election? Why, why, why do we need to go beyond just, hey, go out and vote your yes. values? Why do we need to vote Bible values? Absolutely. And, and by the way, each one of these services we're doing will be completely different with different topics. So I don't know if there's a capacity problem, but I encourage you guys to... <laughs> we'll create overflow or something. Yeah. Okay, so, so look, this, uh, this elect not all elections are created equal. Wow. Not all elections are created equal. A lot of you guys, um, I was born in 93, and my parents were kind of part of this generation. And the, <laughs> and my parents saw the wall fall. 
you have a personal, yeah. amazing story that I heard last night yeah. about the incredible difference of what politics can do to humanity. Yeah. And the moral call we should have between East and West Germany, where you can go to church yeah. or you can go to a gulag. Yeah, that's right. It's that simple. Yeah. And so then the wall fell, and in kind of in a, in a way that I don't think was intentional, I think a lot of middle-class Americans kind of took a deep breath and kind of was like, now I can take the next decade off. And I get it. Wow. They, they were doing bomb drills underneath their desks in the 70s and 80s. They were being told throughout the Reagan administration there was going to be a nuclear warhead going to New York. And like when that wall fell, it was a moment of celebration, but it was also kind of an entrance into complacency. Yeah. And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that critically. Yeah. I'm saying that just honestly. Because I get it. When you go through a couple decades of the Soviet Union's gonna take you over and you win, you kinda enter that post-war phase. Yeah. And I don't think we've ever articulated the 90s as a post-war phase the way we should. Wow. We talk about the 50s as a post-war phase, right? But the 90s was also kind of a post-war phase. And what we didn't realize, and what we kinda just took our eye off the ball is that the Marxists, they didn't all disappear as soon as that physical wall fell, everybody. <laughs> I mean, Herbert Marcuse and Angela Davis, they got to work. And they reinfiltrated a lot of these institutions. They started to go to the seminaries. They started to go to the schools. And what we've kind of seen here, and it's just manifested itself politically quicker because of Donald Trump's style, it's just an accelerant on what already existed. And I want to be very clear. People say, he's dividing the country. He's doing all these things. No, no, no. He's just put an exponent on what was already, what was already happening for the collision course that was inevitable, okay? And so, and in some ways, in a very unusual way, that he's probably the only one that could have probably ever had the capacity to endure what they threw at him. And, and, I, and I, I'm going to build this out in future services, but the kind of moral pietism that people throw at Donald Trump is exhausting to me. Because, like, I'm such a better person than Donald Trump. How could you possibly vote for somebody like that? And, man, I, I come from a church background where we're all sinners in need of Jesus Christ, right? And we're all broken. And kind of, he's such a... And I, and I also say, what is, we could dive into that in the next service, but I will say just generally about the election. Just think of this, and people say, I don't like the fact that it's, you know, so binary, that it's one person or the other. And I, and I kind of, I say, well, first of all, that's how it is, so your, your wishful, you know, kind of interject, interjection into the conversation is completely irrelevant. But also, I kind of like it, and this is, I'm, I'm in the minority opinion here, I kind of like that for the first time we have a choice, not an echo. Where it's like, this guy spoke at the March for Life. This guy wants post-birth abortion. This guy moved the embassy to Jerusalem. This guy gave billions of dollars to Iran. This guy is ending child sex trafficking. This guy did nothing about it. This guy held China accountable. This guy literally made millions of dollars through his son through, by China. This guy is unafraid to be prayed over by evangelical pastors and has a vice president who has introduced more pastors into the White House than any other president in the modern era. This guy, and so I, I think that if, if, if this election goes incorrectly, I, I'm not gonna say it's the end of the country or anything like that, but I will say that it is a worldview that will then be given the biggest platform of, the, of, the, of a superpower. And these people, they, 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 they judge their success based on how much power that they obtain. We do right. not. Right. We actually judge our success by by the fruit, by also conversions, by ideas. Yeah. That, that's who we are as Christians, right? Power is completely kind of like an earthly thing that we don't care that much about. And I'll close with this because I know we're, we're running over time. But it, it best articulates what the other side wants. Because I get asked this question all the time. They say, Charlie, 
what does the left want? I don't get it. It's like what they're doing is trying to destroy things. And I was reading The Art of War, which I encourage all of you guys to read. It's a phenomenal book. It really is. Tons of wisdom there by Sun Tzu. And it just popped out at me. I said, that's exactly right. So some people are willing to burn the country down around them just to rule over the ashes. And that's not a prophetic word for now, golly. And I was like, that's exactly, that. that is, and for some people, they're completely agnostic to the condition of humanity around them. They just want to be the person in charge of that. Yes. And so I, I, we know that the stakes have been higher than ever before. We, we feel it within us that all of a sudden that this is not just another election, right? Yeah. And for believers out there, I mean, we know that the courts are incredibly important. You have Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and now Amy Coney Barrett in just three years. Incredible. And so I know we're over time, but I'll close with this, which is that the government that you have is just like looking in a mirror. It's a reflection of the citizenry, right? And so politicians are just reading the script that we gave them. And so when you don't show up, you don't get active, and you don't vote, and you don't do these things, they're just gonna reflect back on it. And this is a hard thing to say, but yeah, the pedophiles and their lobby, they worked harder than Christians did in the state the last 20 years. It's true. That's why pedophilia in this state has been deregulated. And it's hard for Christians to hear that. It's like, whoa. It's like, yeah, they're up in San Francisco walking precincts. They're donating to candidates. They're making phone calls. And I hate to be that graphic, but that's a real thing that's happened just in this state where pastors are being arrested, but Planned Parenthoods are being opened. And so Benjamin Franklin said, it's a republic if you can keep it. Yes. It's completely in your hands. And so that's what's really on the ballot in this election. Wow. Can I say one thing? Yeah, please go ahead. So. One, one way that you guys can bless us, we do two podcasts today, as I mentioned. If everyone in this room took out your smartphone and subscribed to The Charlie Kirk Show, if everyone did it, we would beat The New York Times in the podcast charts. I know it, and I think that would be pretty amazing. Come so on, that would be awesome. I would be blessed by that. Thank you guys so much. If you guys could do that, it would be a great blessing to us. Come on, would you thank Charlie Kirk? Come services. on, thank you. Thank you, Charlie. Yeah, uh, stay here. Uh, Charlie, Charlie's new book. Yes. Tell us about it. The MAGA Doctrine. The MAGA Doctrine. Yeah. Um, it's available on it's Amazon. Everywhere that you everywhere. can get it. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's actually the most uh, persuasive. There it is right there. Uh, I will. I'd be happy to. Um, <laughs> it's uh, probably one of the most persuasive uh, documents or, or books, I think, that have been written about the president. And I wrote it because I know the president. I've traveled with the president. Um, I have seen a side of him that I think it's completely misrep that does not get talked about at all. No. And I would just got exhausted about people that have never met him, don't know him, don't know why he's doing, telling me why he was doing what he was doing. And so I wrote kind of a, a pseudo-biography, but also an intellectual defense of kind of what he's doing. And so MAGA Doctrine, if you guys want to check it out, that'd be kind of cool too. Fantastic. So good. So make sure you get that. Let, let, me, just, let me just wind this up. Uh, yesterday, I, I like to kind of do a little bit of surfing on YouTube and I, I found an atheist web, website called Reason. Reason, and it's even the atheists are echoing uh, the facts and the reality and the truth. And they said that we saw world poverty and world poverty is anybody that was living on less than $2 a day was deemed uh, impoverished. 
around the world. In from uh, uh, from 1940 to 1980, we saw that number drop to less than 40%. But it went from 1980 to 2012 down to uh, less than 8%. And right now in 2020, it is down. It is coming down to 5.6%, and by 2030, it should be under 5%. Now, nobody tells you this, but the number one contributor to people coming out of poverty, believe it or not, is not socialism. It's free markets. It's two things. It's it's the right to own private property. The number one con one number one common denominator to to whether a nation will be free, its citizen will be free, is can they own private property? And then it's free market commerce. All the things that America has championed. America hasn't just lifted more people out of poverty in this nation and created more wealth than all the nations combined. She, because of her ideas spreading right around the world, literally billions and billions of people have come out of poverty. So because America was founded as one nation under God. Which brings me to the point, if you are not yet under God, if you haven't surrendered your life to Christ, as Charlie said, everything comes back to the source of truth, the source of freedom. God's will for you was for you to be free. There is a devil who is a deceiver who wants you to be bound, who wants you to, to, to live your life angry at the system, angry at never realizing that that you can actually have joy and if the system will change if every single individual took personal responsibility, if every human being on the planet ref reflected Christ, we would live in a peaceful, tranquil, magnificent world. And that's God's will, that you be born again, that His seed comes on the inside of you. When you are born again, there is another power at work. It's not up to you to go to self-help seminars. It's not up to you, know, to you to do all the work. I found that even as I sleep, the Holy Spirit on the inside of me is continually transforming me. I find that even as I transgress a boundary, the Holy Spirit is there like a bumper rail to bring me back in to alignment. And even when I've transgressed and feel like, man, God, I've failed you again. He's, he's in my mess. Jesus got down with a woman caught in adultery and put his fingers in the dirt, showing I'm not afraid to get dirty to deliver somebody who's struggling in a sin. He brings her up and out. He loves you. Would you just close your eyes? With every head bowed, every eye closed, if you're saying, hey, I'm away from God, I'm far from God. I, I, I need to find meaning, purpose, truth, freedom in my life. I need forgiveness. I need a second chance. I need a brand new start. I would love to pray for you today. If that's you, while well, every head is bowed, every eye closed, just, just lift your hand so that I can see. And I'm, I'm going to say a prayer for you as I close this service. Who are those people? Thank you. Thank you, darling. Thank you. Thank you. Who else is there? Just raise your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. While our heads are bowed and our eyes closed, would you join me in this beautiful prayer? Say these words out loud. Say, Heavenly Father. We want to thank You today that You so love me. You sent Jesus, Your only Son, on a rescue mission to save my life. Jesus, thank You that when You died on the cross, every sin, everything I've ever done wrong, 
the punishment was placed on you so that today I can be forgiven, set free. I declare today I am a child of God, clean, filled, refreshed, renewed in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our locations, team, and what we do here at Awakened Church, go to awakenedchurch.com.